0: Amen. Come on now, welcome Pastor Dan. Oh. Come on now, come on. <laughs> oh, that's... Oh, that is very kind. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. Oh, that means an immense amount. Thank you. Oh, good morning to you. Oh, thank you so much. What a thrill to be here with you. I don't have the words. What a joy. Today is an exciting morning for a lot of reasons. Uh, But most of all, it is an exciting morning because today we are joining with millions of other Christians, our brothers and sisters from every corner of the globe who are remembering and celebrating the entry of King Jesus into Jerusalem on the very first Holy Week. The most important week in history. The week that would end with Jesus dying on a cross, rising again, and thereby redirecting the entire course of the cosmos. And as we remember that coming, we naturally think ahead to a day when that same King will come again. This time not to suffer and die, but to be universally celebrated and to bring permanent peace and prosperity, not least of all to the poor, and to people who are victims of violence. Our passage for the morning is Mark 10, 46 through 52, which contains an incredible story, one of my favorites, of something that Jesus really did. It's it's moving, it's funny at parts, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So let's dig right in. Before we do, some of you might be asking, you know, why Mark chapter 10 And not Mark chapter 11 on Palm Sunday. Mark chapter 11 is the chapter that actually recounts Jesus riding into the royal city. And here's why. Because I believe that Mark wanted this episode that we're looking at today, uh, this episode of Jesus' final recorded healing, to frame our vision of Jesus as king. In other words, I think that Mark wanted this particular story to be the backdrop the scrim, the stage set for this pivotal act in Jesus' life. Now, why do I think that? Here's the reason. In the book of Zechariah, written over 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet announced that someday Yahweh himself would return to Jerusalem, to his people, to his temple, not in smoke and fire, but in the form of a humble human king riding on a donkey. And at the end of that prophecy, and it's certainly one that Jesus' biographer, Mark, would have known, Zechariah says of this king, again, this king who would somehow mysteriously embody Yahweh's own personal return to his people after five centuries of absence, he says of that king whom we know to be Jesus, he says, how great is his goodness How great is his beauty. In other words, the prophet was saying that that unlike so many other kings and bosses and presidents and CEOs, this king, Yahweh's king, he won't disappoint. Rather, he will be splendid. And so by placing this episode that we're looking at this morning right before Jesus' royal entry, Mark seems to be saying to us, he's saying, this event, this encounter typifies the king. It typifies his splendor. So, let's get to it and see what we see. I'm going to read Mark 10, 46 through 52. It goes this way, and they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. When uh, our story picks up, Jesus, as you know, is on the final stretch of his final journey to Jerusalem. And all the way along, he has been trying to impress upon the 12, his inner circle of disciples, that he is going to Jerusalem not to live, but to die. And this, this last stretch, the stretch between Jericho and Jerusalem, it is going to be a quad killer. You see, Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. It's the lowest city on earth. By contrast, Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. Therefore, when our story opens, Jesus has got a hike in front of him. He's got a big uphill hike of 3,300 feet. What else should we keep in mind in terms of context? We know that when this story begins, Jesus has been under incredible emotional strain. And think about it. Over the course of this final journey... He's had conflict with the Pharisees. He's had conflict with Peter, who in a a, a bizarre, momentary, satanic takeover had tried to get Jesus to abandon his calling. He's had tension with the Twelve over their just unseemly jockeying for power. He's had more tension with the Twelve over their shaming of parents who brought their children to Jesus, wanting Jesus to bless them. In short, nothing about Jesus' career, and nothing about this final stretch to Jerusalem has been easy. It's been a grind through and through. Last uh, October, my wife Allison and my twin brother Darren and uh, my sister-in-law Becky and I, we, we hiked from the valley floor in Yosemite to the top of Sentinel Dome, and uh, it was a, just a fantastic day. It was a birthday celebration, and it was wonderful, even despite all the smoke from nearby fires. But the point is this. That Sentinel Dome hike is a killer, and it involves 3,500 feet of vertical gain, about the same gain as the walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, we had uh, good gear, plenty of water or, or Our pockets loaded with Kit Kat bars and Twixes, all right? But even so, it was a grind. It's a lot of work. Well, imagine knowing that you had a climb like that ahead of you under the excruciating emotional circumstances that Jesus was experiencing. You know, whereas we climb for fun, uh, with friends, with a uh, delicious pizza dinner back in Mariposa to look forward to, Jesus' post-hike dinner would be denunciation and death, and He knows it. Well, Mark tells us that as Jesus is leaving town with the twelve and this large, raucous crowd that's following, a blind beggar sitting by the road, and uh, Mark identifies Him with specificity. He's Bartimaeus the son of Timaeus. And he's sitting there in the heat and the dust, and he's probably got his cloak splayed out in front of him as a way of collecting coins. And Mark tells us that when Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is walking by, he begins to cry out to him, asking for mercy. And what's interesting is that the picture that Mark points here becomes even more vivid when we compare the Greek word translated cry out here with That same word used in other places in Mark. It's the word krazo. And get this, the fuller definition is this, to make a vehement outcry, to scream or to shriek. Isn't that interesting? Earlier in Mark, Mark uses that same verb krazo to describe the ear-splitting shrieks of that guy possessed by demons, guy who had been haunting the local cemetery, uh, and cutting himself with stones until Jesus healed him. And the point is that this beggar here by the road on this morning of great emotional intensity for Jesus is making a ruckus. And there's, there's nothing polite or restrained or decorous about the way he's crying for help. He's calling out to Jesus with this mad furor, and he doesn't care a bit about what the crowd thinks of him. Well, the crowd are rowdies don't like his yelling. Basically, they tell him to shut up. But nevertheless, Bartimaeus doesn't care. He won't stop. And Mark says that he cries out all the more. Verse 49, the plot thickens. Hearing this man shrieking wildly like a human howler. In a famous fantasy series some of you might be familiar with, Jesus stops. He stands still, which is what the Greek word in verse 49 literally means. And of course, we wonder, is he going to get mad? Remember, he's physically and emotionally spent. He's got to be. And therefore, we wonder, is he going to unload on this guy, this loud mouth who won't stop screaming? And, and no, he won't. Instead, in a, a subtle rebuke of the rebukers, Jesus commands the crowd to call the man to him, which they do. Now, this is interesting and something to notice. It's interesting that just like the beggar, Jesus resists the pressure of the crowd. Think about it. In, in rebuking Bartimaeus, what is the crowd doing? The crowd is implicitly Bossing Jesus. It's as if they're saying, Jesus, don't disappoint us. Stay on your kingly course. Do your kingly thing. Everyone is depending upon you. Don't waste time on this loser. But what does Jesus do? He stops. He stops anywhere. He won't cave into the pressure. And he does the completely countercultural thing that the father would have him do which is to help this desperate man and next we get a surprise man springs up and what happens Jesus doesn't heal him Jesus doesn't heal him at least immediately instead he asks a respectful question verse 51 what do you want me to do for you and If we read imaginatively, we can just kind of see the crowd here. Probably now more exasperated than ever. You know, Jesus, isn't it obvious what he wants? He's blind. He wants to see. You know, what do you think he wants? Golf clubs? You know, a jet ski? Instapot? But again, Jesus won't be cowed. He won't be pushed off course. And this means that he won't deny the man disadvantaged as he has agency and dignity rather he treats him as someone who despite his circumstances despite his disadvantages is able to make choices is able to take action is someone who can retain responsibility for his own life well after receiving the man's answer rabbi i want to see jesus heals him and he follows jesus down the road you know what what a picture of our splendid king, the king whom we're celebrating this morning. And I think that there really are many ways in which this story highlights Jesus' particular splendor, but for me, two really stand out, and I want to draw them uh, out for you. The first one is this, his pressure cooker self-control. Think about it. Again, we've got to assume that Jesus is exhausted, He's physically and emotionally spent, and what's more, his prospects are um, incredibly grim, at least the near-term prospects. Coming up quick on his calendar is a date with a Roman cross, and Jesus knows it. And nevertheless, when Bartimaeus calls out to him asking for help, he gives it. He's able to draw strength from his well, a a deep well dug over many years of the closest possible connection with his father, and he's able to love the man. Think about it. Think about the circumstances. He doesn't explode, and neither does he heal in a begrudging fashion, you know, firing off power just to silence the guy, rather he stops, he stands still. And ignoring the chorus of voices, telling him to blow off this guy, he treats him with dignity and even more as something precious, engaging him in conversation, asking him what it is that he wants, what it is that they can do together, as John Stott puts it. And friends, that King Jesus is splendid in this particular way is good news for us because it means that we who belong to Him, we can exemplify this same kind of humanity as well. We can live with a regal self-control that makes God look good and which blesses other people. Think about it. The essence of Christianity is Unity with Jesus, it's being forgiven by him and then connected to him in a permanent union. it's dying with him and rising with him, and then it's living that new spiritual reality, that new permanent connection of mind and heart, where we get the benefit of his own mind and heart and person. And that means something very good and very practical. It means that none of us who belongs to Jesus has to be a hothead. Losing control over every provocation or indignity, big or small, doing damage to ourselves and our relationships and our reputation and others. None of us has to be a slave to every impulse, to every inclination, rather joined to our splendid king. We're free and we're empowered to live lives, among other things, of splendid self-control, genuine humanness in our families and in our workplaces. In fact, I'm sure that this week some of you, maybe in this room, maybe watching on the screen, you show just that kind of splendid Jesus-like self-control and extreme pressure. I bet you did. Self-control that wasn't possible for you before you sank with Jesus and resurfaced with Him in baptism. Maybe you were, say, at a Zoom meeting this past week, and one of your colleagues said something disparaging about you, right in front of your team. And at that moment, you felt your anger rising as your reputation was threatened, and you felt ready to unload on that person for the slight. But then, you found yourself responding in an entirely different way from an entirely deeper source, with a gracious word, a wise one rather than a defensive one. And as you did, the whole temperature of the meeting dropped 10 degrees with your coworkers direct messaging you afterwards, giving you props for your grace under fire. That's what this first feature of King Jesus' splendor, his pressure cooker self-control makes possible for us who belong to him by faith. You know, I said that two aspects of our King's splendor jump out at me in this story. Here's the second one. His program-pausing personal concern. Think about this. Jesus has a large-scale calling. He has a cosmic calling, and that's to get to Jerusalem and then to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world and in so doing to reconstitute the very nature of creation which is what we as Christians believe happened after Jesus died and rose again. The world became a different place. And again, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He's the Son of Man and He understands Himself to be such. He knows what He's called to do. He's the one whose life mission is to fulfill the Father's century-long plan to save the world through His special nation and nevertheless That large-scale mission, that cosmic calling, it didn't keep him from responding to individual cries. And when Jesus hears Bartimaeus' desperate shrieking, he stops. He stands still. And then treating the man as someone of infinite worth, not as a speed bump to get over. Before he gets to the really important work, he engages him. In conversation. And then he heals him. And then, after giving attention to this individual cry, what does he do? He gets back on the road. Recently, I read about a guy, a real guy, who exemplified this particular aspect of King Jesus' splendor. His name is David Ruggles. And he really inspired me. And he's someone whom I want to be like, and and not least of all in my pastoral role here. Let me tell you about David Ruggles. In, In addition to running a bookstore, Muggles, who was from a very strong Christian family, was an officer in an abolitionist organization based in New York. And one of his roles in this organization was to go to dangerous corners of the city where slaves were being locked away and inform them of the state law that held that after nine months of residency in New York City... They were free. You could think of David Ruggles as the prototype for somebody like Gary Haugen, uh, the founder of International Justice Mission, and Ruggles was constantly at risk of kidnapping. He was physically beaten several times, he even had his bookstore burned down for his work. But here's the part of the story that really struck me. In October of 1838, Ruggles is working at his desk and he receives a note from Somebody in his network saying that an escaped slave has shown up in the city and needs a place to stay. Well, what does Ruggles do when he gets this opportunity? This busy guy with a big calling who we must assume is, is emotionally and physically taxed. Does he tell this contact of, to find somebody else to help with a fugitive? Does he say politely or impolitely that his job is to write the articles, edit the journal, set the policy, Does he add that just now he's absorbed in a court case involving another fugitive slave, which he was, and to go talk to somebody else? No, no, no. Instead, Ruggles heads out personally to the docks in the dark of night to find this fugitive, which he does, and then he invites him to stay in his own home. And almost immediately after seeing that this man gets a good meal, Ruggles learns that this fugitive's fiance is back in Baltimore. So Ruggles says, hey, send for her. Bring her up. Well, after she arrives and realizing this couple has no pastor, Ruggles calls his own pastor, and he asks if he would perform this couple's wedding. Here's the icing on the wedding cake of this story. Before the newlyweds head off for their honeymoon, David, Ruggles, not a wealthy guy, hands them $5 bill as a wedding gift. What King Jesus like love? And even more specifically, what program pausing personal concern? Here's the punchline. Do you know who the fugitive slave whom Ruggles shelters from slave catchers and feeds and finds a wedding officiant for? I bet you can guess. Frederick Douglass. And imagine how the world would be different without Frederick Douglass. Think about his singular contribution. And yet, without David Ruggles taking him in, pausing the large-scale work for the small, Frederick Douglass might never have become Frederick Douglass. Without David Ruggles, Frederick Douglass might have been tackled, shackled, sold to the Deep South, never to be heard from again, which proves that sometimes... Our most lasting large-scale work is actually our small-scale work. This aspect of the King's splendor, it holds promise for us in another way as well. It shows that we who belong to Jesus, we can bring the big and the small together, the programmatic and the personal, again, because Jesus did, and we belong to him. And this encourages me because this is candidly the kind of pastoral leadership I aspire to offer you here at Hillside. This is my first real Sunday, so maybe it's okay to take a minute to talk about this. You know, like King Jesus, I want to stay focused on the big mission. And for us here at Hillside, that mission is to be light in the world. And I want to work with our superb staff and our wise council and so many wonderful lay leaders to create systems that will allow us here to bring many, many people into Christ's body by faith, into the hillside family. And I want to work at systems that will polish them into beautiful beaming bulbs. I want to build systems that shape our hillside kids and the friends that they bring to live joyfully and loyally their whole lives. And to do that is going to require me to be very disciplined with time, which I intend to do. But at the same time, I want to offer you pastoral leadership that looks like Jesus here, that treats every one of you and every staff member, every community member at Hillside as someone of infinite worth whose personal needs are as important as the grand programmatic ones. You know, our king brought together the big and the small, the programmatic and the personal. He wasn't too busy to spend time with Bartimaeus to give him meaningful time and attention. But at the same time, after giving Bartimaeus the love he needed, what did he do? He kept heading for Jerusalem to work at his cosmic call to die on the cross, to end the tyranny of sin over the earth. And that's what I want to do. Being faithful to the large-scale responsibilities of a senior pastor in a big church in extraordinarily complex times, but never at the expense of the small, to bring them together in splendid harmony like our splendid King did. And you know what? That's what I want for you as well, because God has given you An important calling too. One that will require of you deft balancing of the big and the small. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son, our king. And thank you for his particular splendor. Thank you for what he accomplished for us 2,000 years ago on a cross at the end of Holy Week. And Father, this week we want to pattern ourselves after him, the one to whom we are joined in loving union, in the way that we walk, in the way that we stand still for the Bartimaeuses around us, and in the way we stay committed to whatever large-scale creation-shaping work you've called us to do inside and outside our church. We love you. We pray in the name of our King. Amen. Amen. What a King we have. What a King we have. May this Holy Week be one in which you live in great confidence in your King. Enjoying His favor which you have. Marveling at His faithfulness refusing to fret too much over evil, like the psalmist Psalm 37 says, and seeking to follow Him in the power of the Spirit. See you this Friday for our Good Friday service. God bless you, and go in peace.